Very nice. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, worship team. Well, friends, uh, probably a few weeks ago uh, or so, I was talking to an old guy, a really old guy. who's was my dad, so uh, I can call him that, right? Um, and, and I was talking to him about this series that we've been in on the life of David, and he said to me, you know, hey, Doug, listen, um, when you said you were going to do a whole series on the life of David, I thought, well, probably going to be pretty short, right? I guess David killed a giant, and you know, that's pretty important, right? And, but a whole series on the guy, and he admitted he was thinking, how's Doug going to pull this off and actually try to keep it interesting, right? I might have embellished a little bit of what my dad said, but it's my dad, right? I can do that, right? Okay, so... Um, so how many of you kind of had maybe, you know, it was good feedback from him, but how many of you honestly thought when we were embarking on this series, which this is the 21st sermon and the final one on the life of David, when you thought about this David series, thought, well, this probably won't be, re-. maybe you thought something similar to my dad, anybody? No, maybe a few. Okay, there's some honesty out here. Yeah, okay. So, well, hopefully, hopefully, this has been a good journey for us, and we've called it a journey of the heart, and this week after... 21 sermons on the life of David. Um, We're going to say goodbye to David. And as I was thinking through kind of this overview of his his life, um, I I don't think there's probably another human being that ever existed that had higher highs or lower lows than David did. I mean, this series, which we launched way back in June, we watched the beginnings of David's story where, where the prophet Samuel came to Jesse's family and then bypassed the more obvious sons who looked the part of a king and chose the runt of the litter, David, and it was because God said, man looks at the outward appearance, but, but God looks at the heart. And God loved David's wild heart of, of, of abandon and, and his heart of reflection and, and his stubborn love. David was that kind of heart even as a young man. And then we watched through his story as, as David had so much trust, so much faith in God, that when he was still just a kid, he single-handedly took on this giant, Goliath. And, and we all took a stone from that service to remind us, a stone that we could keep with us, that, that in the face of the Goliath in our life, we too can take whatever it is that God has placed in our hand, we can step up to the plate and throw it as hard as we possibly can. That's the reminder in that story. And then next we looked at David and the cave season of his life. That, that place where God maybe even seems absence, a- absent. And, and it's a place of disappointment, of confusion. And we learned in those weeks that God does some of his best work while we are in caves. And that caves are where God shapes hearts, shapes lives like no place else. We also looked at David's heart for worship when he brought the ark back to Jerusalem and and, and he danced. And his display of worship and of love, this expressive worship, um, was focused on joy and gratitude and it, it couldn't help but be expressive. And then we took a turn into a darker chapter of David's story. We learned the dangers of hiddenness where David committed murder, adultery, and lived for over a year in spiritual duplicity that was a real low point in his story, but also a cautionary tale for us to look at. After that, we looked at David as he was aging and, and had gone through betrayal and the revolt of one of his own sons, and his son had been killed by one of David's commanders. We looked at David as he overlooked the city, and he wept, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
And that story helped us to learn the importance of rejecting the temptation for us to live in passivity and instead learn to be a people who speak the truth in love. And last week we looked at David's generous heart, this, this man who knew that it all came from God, it all belongs to God, and then he modeled generosity for us out of his grateful heart. I mean, David, he lived an amazing life when we think of it, from, from shepherd boy to king, from fugitive to conqueror. He was abandoned and betrayed in seasons of his life, but he also knew friendship with Jonathan, like few human beings ever have. He, on the one hand, was a tender worshiper, but he was also a violent warrior. He was a murderer and an adulterer, but he was also called a man after God's own heart. I mean, I don't know of any other human being I can think of that had higher highs or lower lows than David, and, and, and I think that's part of why whoever you are and wherever you are in your life, we each can have something to learn um, from David because he's been there. His story tracks for us so many places that we each have gone and will go. And this morning as we close this series, um, my hope is that you'll keep with some of these stories and you'll keep wrestling through some of the things in David's story and that you'll return to his story throughout your own life again and again in your own devotional times, that you'll keep reading his story, um, that you'll remember when you're reading the Psalms, especially when they're confusing or angry or depressed or whatever, that these were written, many of them by David, out of an authentic heart, and that those prayers can guide you into authentic open-faced relationship with God where there's nothing hidden and you can come as you are. So my prayer is that this won't just stop, but that you'll continue to connect um, with David as a guide in your own spiritual learning, your own spiritual journey. Now this morning, what I want to do is I want to skip all the way ahead to David's name in the New Testament. Because there's a very significant connection between David and Jesus. And as we begin the Advent season next week, this seemed like a great bridge between the two. And some of you know that in, like, for instance, in Luke chapter 2, when we tell the Christmas story, it says that, that Joseph, who is Jesus' father, Joseph came from Bethlehem, the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David. It says that right in the text. And in fact, even David, even though he's an Old Testament character and lived hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, David is actually mentioned in the beginning of the Old Testament, right there in Matthew chapter 1. In fact, it's in the beginning and the end. So in Matthew 1, the New Testament opens with these words. Matthew 1, it says, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then if you were to flip all the way back to the end of the book, the last words of Jesus that are recorded in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, in the last chapter it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring, another way of saying this, son, the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And so it just brings about the question, and the question we're going to look at is, is um, why is Jesus called the son of David? I mean, you think about this. This is not a distinction that's given to anybody else in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus is not addressed as the son of Moses or the son of Elijah or the son of Isaiah. But over and over again, he's called the son of David. 
And so the question is, well, why is that? Why do they call Jesus the son of David? Is, is it because of David's faultless moral track record? Right, okay, if you've been here, you know the answer to that is nope, right? No, no, that's not why. Um, I mean, if you were looking for that, then of the Old Testament characters, you'd probably say, hey, well, Jesus, the son of, of you know, Joseph um, back in Genesis, right? He, his life was far more pure than, than David's life story. So if that's where they were angling for, they'd have looked for a different character. So I don't think it was that. I don't think it was even David's giftedness, his, his courage. It wasn't because of David's character. In fact, I kind of don't think it was that much about David at all. I think that Jesus is called the son of David as a reminder from God that God would keep his promises to rescue and redeem his people. When you hear Jesus, the son of David, it's this reminder of what is going to happen through David's life and legacy long after David is gone. See, God had promised when David was still on earth that his throne would be established forever. But if you keep reading the story, even after David's death, it's not long before that kingly line blows it. And within a few generations, the glory days of of David and the rule of his son Solomon, that, that glory is gone. Like, so the people hung on to this promise. Well, God said that, that he would, his rule would reign forever through the line of David. And so they held on to this promise that they were not abandoned. And that at some point, God would come through for them, that he would rescue them. John Ortberg points out that the title Jesus, or the, I'm sorry, the, the title Son of David it's a reminder of at least two crucial aspects of Jesus. And, and one of those aspects is when we hear Son of David, it's about this hope for a Messiah. So it's that, and I'm going to talk about that this morning. And it also is a reminder of Jesus' humanity. And so I want to do in this message is look at those two areas, those two things related to Jesus' title, um, his name as the Son of David. Because it points out his identity, who he is, his mission, what he's come to do. And I want to talk a little bit about their implications for you and I. Now, the first reason that Jesus is called the son of David is this. It was a title of hope. It was a title of hope. In fact, it was maybe the supreme title of hope for an Israelite. You see, David's reign as king was remembered not only as like a golden age for the nation of Israel. It was, it was the golden age of Israel. It was the golden age. So think about this just for a minute. Like the first king before David was Saul. And king Saul, as you know, he was a disappointment. He divided the country. And then David became king, and he unified the country, and he brought freedom from their enemies, and he led them into unprecedented prosperity and devotion and worship to God. Like they had never, in their history, they'd never been in that kind of situation before. And then after David died, his son Solomon became king, and he reigned largely because of what David had done to set the table for his life. But soon after Solomon, the country was divided into two kingdoms. You'll see on the screen here, there's Israel in the south and Judah in the north. There's two separate kings, a divided community. And in that situation, they had centuries of exile and oppression from one foreign power after another. All the way up to Jesus' day and through Jesus' day. Like the whole history of Israel has been this way. See, there was only one brief moment when they look back where the whole country was free and united and devoted and at peace. And that time was under David. Under God's anointed. So that, that name, Son of David, became a title of hope. So let me give you a really terrible analogy here. Um, 
I'm thinking back to a kingdom here in kind of the Arizona area. Uh, back in, you know, 2008, uh, this, this kingdom that, that experienced a golden age. Well, maybe a couple of years. A, a golden age of unexpected success and flourishing, at least by Arizona sports team standards, okay? And then went from that back into a, an abyss of darkness. Anybody want to guess which one of our teams that would... The Cardinals. Okay, I kind of wondered, because that's sort of true of more than one of our teams. But yes, yes, we're aiming for the Cardinals here, right? I mean, think about, there was a golden age that we had. There, were, there was a day. There was a day, friends, when the NFL opponents came to the University of Phoenix Stadium, and, and the presence of Kurt Warner appeared unto them, and the glory of Kurt and Fitz shone round about him, and they were sore afraid. They led the Cardinals to the Super Bowl, but the Steelers cheated and were given a touchdown near the end of the game, even though that wasn't really a catch because his feet only grazed the grass, didn't hit the ground. <clears throat> Sorry, I need a little healing around that one still. Um, but even after that, the Cardinals fans' hopes were up. We lost the Super Bowl, but the Cardinals were for real. Fans could believe. But when Kurt left, the glory left with him and the Cardinal's name is Ichabod. The glory has departed, right? Now, if you're as much of a fan as I am, probably for a couple of years, you thought, hey, wait, wait, what if Kurt, like, starts feeling better, right? And he, what if he comes back and plays for another year or two? We could get right back into the flow, right? I mean, it's happened before with other sports heroes where they departed and retired. I mean, remember long ago when Michael Jordan retired, tried to play baseball for a little while? Remember that? Anybody? Yeah? And then he returned to basketball, and when he did... Uh, he sent a two-word telegram. Are there any sports nuts out here that remember what that two-word telegram was when Jordan... Yes, I'm back. I'm back, right? And so the fans were filled with hope. And so the rest of us look at that, and we're, just, we're hoping that our washed-up sports heroes might do the same for us one day. You know? But it's not going to happen. The golden age is gone. Kurt is too old, and so that hope is long, long gone. Well, for the Israelites, by the time... The first century had arrived. Their glory years, that hope was long gone. The glory years of Israel were a distant memory for them. And for way longer than anybody could remember, they had just been pawns. I mean, for another country to rule over Israel, that wasn't even a major accomplishment for those other nations anymore. It was no big deal. It was just kind of like a, a trade in a sports team with a player to be named later. Like, it was no big deal. They'd been pawned off to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians, to the Greeks, to the Romans. Like, nothing was the way that it was supposed to be. Like, this wasn't supposed to be the legacy of God's people. Not like this. And so within the story of the people of Israel, the hope was... Listen, someday we'll have a king like that, like, like, like David again. And so they hoped for that day. The, the king that they hoped for, they hoped for what they called the, the root of Jesse. Um, they called him the son of David, right? The Messiah will come. And the word Messiah simply meant the anointed. And they were thinking along the lines of David who was anointed by God, right? And so it will just flow through that anointing as well. And... and when we hear the name Christ, Jesus Christ, like Christ is not Jesus' last name. See, Christ, right? Christos means the anointed one. And so people strongly believe that, hey, hey, when the son of David comes, he's going to finally set everything right. And so Jesus comes, and many people didn't recognize him as the Messiah because he didn't behave like they thought he would. 
Now, some of the people recognized who he was. Some of them saw Jesus in action, saw his power, experienced him as a person, and said, whoa, 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 there has never been a man like this. This is the son of David that we've been waiting and hoping for. And it's really striking if you look through the New Testament, you just kind of go through and look for that name, the son of David. And oftentimes when that phrase is used of Jesus, it's a people or a person that's crying out for help. Somebody that would otherwise be hopeless cries out for help and says, son of David. We'll look at a few of those here real quick. In Matthew 9 it says, as Jesus went on, two blind men followed him calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And then in Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman, so by the way, this isn't even an Israelite, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. There's a story in the chapter 10 of of the book of Mark, uh, the story of blind Bartimaeus. Um, It says, verse 47, then Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, and he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I love picturing, by the way. I love picturing this scene, right? These people are telling him to shut up, and he just shouts more, son of David, right? And then it says, verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so they, this is the crowd that had been telling him to shut up, right? They called the blind man and said, cheer up, you're on your feet. Get on your feet. He's, he's calling you, right? Which is hilarious, right? They've been telling him, pipe down, just pipe down. Jesus doesn't want to listen to you, right? And then Jesus hears him, and then they say, hey, dude, cheer up. Of course Jesus wants to see you. Get on over here, blind guy, right? And this is because Jesus, the son of David, just loves it when people cry out and ask him for help. See, Jesus is never too busy. He's never too preoccupied. He loves it. He just loves to give hope. So I want to give us kind of an implication of this here. And in a moment, I'm going to ask that we do something that's unusual maybe for our community right here in the middle of the message. We're going to gather into groups of two or three or four and and pray to Jesus, the son of David. And the question, the first of two questions that I'm going to have us focus on as we just spend a few minutes together praying in, in, in a moment here here's the first one. What do you most want or need from Jesus this season? Like, what are you desperate for? Like, if you could ask the son of David for anything, just like Bartimaeus did, like, what would make you want to shout out? What would make you cry out? Where, where are you maybe even desperate enough? Maybe in your life it's for healing. Maybe for physical healing um, or maybe healing in your heart. Maybe for yourself, maybe for a friend or a family member. Maybe that's what you would cry out for. Maybe you would cry out for peace. Maybe you are tormented by by fear or anxiety. You cry out for that. Or maybe if you could ask for anything this morning, maybe you'd say, I just would love some joy. Right? I mean, we're coming up on the Christmas season, and one of the statements that, that is connected with this time of the year is, is, I bring you good news of great joy. And the phrase actually goes, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for who? All people, right? And maybe you're here today and you go, I'm not one of those who's experiencing good news of great joy, but I really want that. 
So the first thing we'll have you just briefly pray together in groups two, three, or four here is, is, is what is it that you, if you could cry out to the son of David, to Jesus, what would you ask him for this season? So that's the one. So get that kind of located in your heart. Um, and we're not going to give you time to tell the story. So you have about 10 seconds just to say the phrase of what it is when we do move into, uh, into these small circles to pray. Um, so that's the one thing. So what about you? And then what, do we, what does our church need? I was thinking about what does our church need to ask the son of David for? What are we crying out for? Um, this week I got an email from somebody who, who had felt so far away from God, and they were in a really tough place. And it just got me thinking that, wow, you know, over this next month, over the Advent season and Christmas, there's going to be probably, you know, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 100 different men or women who come through these doors that are new to us. And I just started to dream, like, what if dozens of them ended up receiving the greatest gift of all this Christmas? And what if we got to be a part of that? So, so here's what I want us to do. Um, just take a moment right now here, middle of the sermon. We're going to huddle up in groups of two, threes, or fours if you're willing. And you can take a pass and maybe just pray on your own if you want. But again, the two things are, what do you cry out to Jesus for? And then together you will ask him or have the person next to you will ask him to hear your cry. And then just take a moment and ask God to use our church in bringing many people to Christ during this next month. And, and um, again, this is not time for long stories. This is just going to be a couple minutes here. Uh, you can do this two, threes, or fours if you want to be by yourself. That's fine as well. There's no pressure on that. We're going to do short, short prayers, and then I'll pray to cue you to move into um, God using us as a church. Um, but again, just think of this idea of Jesus, the son of David, that we're crying out to him, asking him um, for what we need and what we want as our church, what our hearts cry as to see people come to Jesus. And then I'll conclude our time of prayer. So there we go, short prayers. Groups of two, three, or four, I know this is different, but you guys are really, really smart and flexible. You're going to, ready to engage, and then we'll, right, go ahead, move, and I'll kind of cue us through here. So real briefly, just name the thing that you're crying out to Jesus for personally. Go ahead, the first person, do that. for the next person now what they're crying out for and then move to the next person if you haven't yet what they're crying out for And to the next person. And now just spend the last minute here praying uh, for God to hear our cry, to use our church, our church family, 
in reaching people that don't yet know Jesus. So spend just a moment asking him to do that in this next season. that up. Go ahead and wrap that up. And I'll close us in prayer together. Jesus, son of David, you know our heart's desperate cries of what we each long for and need. Places where we need hope. Maybe where we've given up hope. But we cry out to you that in this season, you would hear our cry, that you would answer our prayers. And as a people, as a church, it is our heart's cry to see people come to know you, that that, that people would come to know you, Jesus, come to follow you. And I pray that we would be able to be involved in how you're working in people's lives to draw them and maybe even introduce them to you especially in this Christmas season. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen. Amen. All right. All right. Now, let me summarize again that first part of this this message here. What we looked at here is a very important facet of, of the name Son of David is to see the title. It's a title of hope, right? And so every time you hear and read that, especially in this Christmas season, Son of David, I want to remember the hope. I want you to remember the hope that Jesus brings all of us, especially when we are desperately in need of hope. But there's this other nuance that I want to look to at this title, Son of David. And so um, we're going to look at Matthew 1 in a moment because of the fact um, see, Jesus is called the son of David. It also emphasizes that he it emphasizes his humanity, the humanity of Jesus. So it does bring us toward hope, but he also is a, is a title of humanity. It's a title that reminds us that Jesus was an actual person. Uh, Romans 1 says this about Jesus. It says, Jesus, as to his divine nature, was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be called a son of God. So he's both, right? He's the son of God. He's divine. But he's also known as the son of David because he's a real human being. So it is, it is both. And so now in Matthew chapter 1, there's 16 verses. It's this genealogy. It's this series of, you know, who begat who? And this does not, by the way, especially because it opens the New Testament, like this does not seem to be like a gripping way to start a book, does it? Anybody else ever think that, right? Here's how we're going to start the New Testament, with a genealogy. Um, have you ever spent time with somebody who really is obsessed with their genealogy? Yeah, I, I was with a family one time, and they, this family talked about their family trees and their genealogical tables and stories about descendants and the family and all the stuff they'd done and who they were. And it went back, I don't know, probably a couple few hundred years. And, and as they talked about it, on and on, I, I was moved. Um, I was almost moved, actually, to tears. But they were tears of boredom, right? Because 
This is not exciting stuff for me. Now, but to the Jewish folks, this was really exciting stuff. They loved their genealogical tables, and they used it to establish their identity as the people of God because it was such an important theme to them. And so oftentimes, you could read in different historical books these genealogies for, for the family lines of heroes, and you would see the, the, the line of their family up into this heroic character. But there's a few things that I think are helpful for, for us to understand. Um, historically, <clears throat> the genealogies of the Israelites, there's three things. One, they only listed Jews. Right? So the background, if they were going to list this hero's background, it would only contain Jews, it would only contain Israelites, and part of the reason for that was to establish the purity of their bloodlines. In fact, in ancient times, back in their, their day, um, if, if there was a priest, um, if someone was going to be a priest in the Jewish faith, they had to show an unbroken pedigree all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. And if there was any foreign blood in their bloodline, that man would be disqualified from being a priest, right? So that's the first thing, just listed the Jews. Uh, The second thing, it only listed the men. These these tables only listed men. Women back then had no legal rights. A a genealogy would would no more say who your mother or that person's mother was um, and that their mother was so-and-so any more than, you know, you and I would do our genealogies and say, well, Doug, this is Doug whose first pet was a goldfish, right? It just wouldn't be considered relevant in their culture which is sad, but that's the way it was. Um, And thirdly, their genealogies, they only listed the respectable or heroic people. So a genealogy containing, you know, shady characters or scandal, it was pretty much unheard of. So we got all that there? You got that? Ready? Does that sink in, those three right there? So now when we look at the genealogy of David and Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, I'm just going to point out a few names here. First of all, Look at verse 3. This is Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about her if you don't know her story. This is found back in Genesis chapter 38. You can read it sometime. First of all, she's a woman, so according to their tradition, she wouldn't belong on this table. And then second, she's not Jewish. Um, She was an outsider of foreign blood. And then thirdly, hers is a very scandalous story. Just to summarize her story real briefly... She was widowed and then disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced and slept with her father-in-law, Judah, so she could bear children. I mean, this is a scandalous story, and here she is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Interesting, okay? Here's another one, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, there's another woman listed in. This is unusual for them. And you might remember her story. She was from the city of Jericho. So she was not Jewish. She was a Canaanite. She was an outsider. And if you know that story from back when the children of Israel are coming to take the promised land and they're battling, um, she didn't actually disguise herself as a prostitute. She was a prostitute, okay? And she helped the spies that came into the city. And so she was saved and married in. And she is listed as an important person in the story of Jesus. Interesting. Fascinating, right? Also in verse 5, we read that Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, this is the third woman listed in this genealogy. Again, um, she doesn't belong there, according to how they did genealogies. And Ruth, she also was not Jewish. She was a member of the Moabites, a pagan enemy of Israel. 
And she lived with the Israelites because her mother-in-law was Israelite, but she stays in, and she ends up in the story and listed in the lineage of Jesus. And then in verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Wow, so here's a fourth woman who, you know, according to back, back then, doesn't belong in here, right? You remember her name, by the way, who this was? Yes, this is Bathsheba. She was an adulteress. It talks about her husband, who David murdered, Uriah, who in the books that we've been studying here, he's known as Uriah the Hittite. So in other words, he was a foreigner, and so his wife Bathsheba, she was also probably a foreigner, because if not, it's even worse in Jewish culture that she would have married one, right? So here we are, again, this genealogy of Jesus. He's the hero of the New Testament. I mean, he's the hero of the human race. This is the opening lines of the story of the New Testament of Jesus. And, and here are at least four characters that aren't men. They're women who are listed, and they're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're seen as unclean. And by the way, having all this in there would disqualify anyone back then from being a priest let alone a potential, you know, Messiah or the great high priest that Jesus ultimately served um, as for us, our great high priest. And in this genealogy, all of those characters, all but one, involves some stories of serious sin. Like, any devout Jew would read this and immediately be offended, scandalized by the first few words in Matthew's story, be like, what in the world are they even doing in here? But I tell you what I think they're doing in the bloodline of Jesus. I think Matthew, when he writes this book, he's tipping his hand right at the start of the book. I mean, this is such a beautiful nugget in Scripture. Matthew is saying that Jesus Christ, the son of David, is taking on himself the representation and the salvation of the whole fallen, sinful human race. He is saying from the outset that the story of Jesus will not just be good news for a few religious superstars or one ethnic group. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. And in this story, we get tipped off right away that now Jesus is going to throw the kingdom gates wide open. He's going to include and welcome Gentiles as well as Jews, women as well as men, spiritual giants, spiritual dwarfs, insiders, and outsiders. And Jesus is going to take on himself the guilt and the sin of prostitutes and pagans and adulterers and lost, broken, imperfect people like old King David and like you and like me. See, Jesus enters the story of planet Earth And he comes along and says, you can be a part of my story. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done. Even those of you who are here this morning at Hope that don't know me yet, Jesus would say. Those of you that think that that, that I would be shocked or scandalized by your sin, Jesus says, you can be a part of my story. I choose you. And that is the heart of Jesus for you. Expressed right in the opening verses. His heart for you. See, friends, Jesus became the son of David, not because David was so perfect, (laughs) not at all, 
but precisely because David was a flawed man, imperfect like you and me. And Jesus took on our humanity and our sin, and then he offered to partner with us in doing life if we will only do what David did. If we will just say yes to him. If we will just say yes to Jesus. And maybe this morning you're um, wondering. Maybe you've come and, and you don't know Jesus or you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus. That invitation is wide open for you. It's wide open for you. And at the end of every service, we have a couple folks up here that are here to pray with people for any reason whatsoever. And when we get to that point um, at the end, they're here and they will pray with you. And they're, again, they're here to pray for people for any reason, but they would love to lead you in a prayer to say yes to following Jesus, to say yes to this man who offers himself for us. Friends, as we end our journey in the life of David, I want to read this beautiful verse about David's death, and it's actually found in the New Testament. It's Acts chapter 13, verse 36, says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. See, David had served God's purpose in his generation. He was born... And he was handsome, right? He said he was a handsome man. He had gifts. He did amazing things. He, he got some stuff right. He got some stuff right. But we also know the Bible's honest about his story. He got a lot of things wrong. But David himself, for all his sin, all his mistakes and brokenness, David, it says right here in this passage that, that he served God in his generation. And then his time passed. And friends, now it's your time. It's your day. Like, this is your generation right now, and it lasts a brief time, our lives do, but, 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 but this is your time right now, this moment. And the son of David calls to each of us and says, hey, you there, <laughs> you can be part of my story. You can join into this story. You can serve the father in your generation. And so what I want you to do is um, in the seat pocket in front of you, hopefully these got all the way around, I didn't check. Um, there's a card. There's a card that, just go ahead and pull it out, and we'll see if I can find one. Let's see if they're up here. Are we finding them? Looks like, a, looks like a headstone right there. And what I want to ask you to do is to just grab a pen or pencil right now and just fill in the blank, put in your name, put your name in there, and and it turns that verse into, for me, it would be, Doug, after he served the purpose of God and his generation, fell asleep and was gathered to the Father. Um, and so just like Acts 13, 36 was the epitaph for David, uh, this can be yours as well. I mean, you can actually just put this on your tombstone if you want someday, because if you were confused, you can just put this on there, right? So you're welcome. We got your, we got your preloaded. Um, but, but fill your name in on that. And what I want you to do with this is to take this with you, uh, to take it home, put it in your Bible, maybe put it on your mirror, put it on your dresser, someplace that you're going to see this. And when you see this, I want it to be a reminder that, that the son of David, that Jesus chooses you to be a part of his story and to serve God in your generation. And what we get to do is we get to offer hope to people. We get to offer hope to people. 
Just like the son of David was a title of hope, we get to offer hope to people and keep offering that hope that, that God um, moves when we offer that hope to people, that lives change when we offer hope, that love acts. And so you get to be like David, a bringer of hope in your generation. Worship team, uh, will you come? Now, as we close here, I want you to think back to that, that mid-sermon prayer that I invited you to pray, where you were to cry out and tell God, what is it that you really want or need? What are you needing hope for in this season? And so that's what we're asking God for. And now my question flips a little bit, and I want to ask you, what would you like to give God this season? What would you like to offer to him or give to him? Um, and like I just mentioned a moment ago, maybe... Maybe there's someone, someone here or some folks here that would say, you know what, I don't follow yet Jesus. I don't yet follow him as my Lord, as my Savior. And maybe you'd want to give Jesus your heart. Maybe that's what you would want to give to God. Um, or maybe for any of us, maybe what we would want to give to God is just to take a, a time where we're going to be alone with him and pray or listen and just spend time. Maybe that would be something this season that you would want to give to God. For some of you, maybe he'll call you to give some kind of gift, um, whether it's financial or another way, to another person around you or to a ministry or to this church, and maybe he's prompting your heart, and it's between you and God. We don't make a big pressure deal on that. Um, maybe what you want to give to God is, is your willingness. <laughs> you're, you want to give him your willingness that you're going to be willing to be bold this next couple of weeks where you'll be courageous enough to invite people who don't yet have a church home to come to our Christmas Eve services or one of our Sunday services this next month, and maybe what you'll give God is just your willingness to have eyes to be open, to invite and to ask, and to have boldness for that. Uh, maybe I had a sense that there's some of you here today that, that, um, that you have what you want to give to God is this willingness to finally say yes to be reconciled with somebody that you've been estranged from. So again, just the question is, what do you want to give to God? Um, another thing I think of, maybe it's for some of us, we need to be especially attentive to people who have lost someone. Um, they've lost someone, and this is a tough season for them. Um, because this is, it's a hard season. It's a joyful season for, for us, but it's real hard for others because it's our first Christmas maybe without someone that we love that passed away this last year. And I know that there's a number of us who have suffered loss around this time of the year in, in past years that this just brings up a, a hard time. Um, and if you're in that place, like where Christmas is a hard time, where, where it brings up this season of loss, if that's you, I want to encourage you to just kind of trigger your mind every time you hear Jesus, the son of David, maybe could remind ourselves um, that while fallenness and broken twi brokenness twists everything in the world around us, like it was that way for David, it was that way for the son of David, it was that way for Jesus, it's that way for you and me, because um, that's the world we live in. But maybe we could be reminded that it's not always going to be that way, right? Maybe when we hear Son of David during this Christmas season, we can be hopeful about that, that it's not always going to be that way. Um, 
I mean, Kurt Warner, friends, if you're still hoping, he's not coming back, okay? Right? He played football in his generation. His time is done. Um, David, the son of Jesse, he's not coming back. He served God in his generation. His moment is done. Uh, but Jesus, the son of David, he is coming back. His time is not done. His full reign is yet to come. And someday it will happen. Maybe next year, maybe in a thousand years, where we will finally experience God fully coming. And at that point, we will have real hope. There will be no more fallenness or brokenness, no more tears. But until that day, friends of hope, just like David did, will we serve God in our generation? Will you stand with me as we close with this song?